0: Great, we continue through our series uh, through the book of Philippians and today we are talking about what we live for, what is it that we live for because what we live for not only determines how we live but also determines uh, the perspective that we have on life and also the perspective that we have on death, we don't often think of it that way do we? But the more we live and the more we treasure the things of this world, the more we will be filled with dread and fear towards death. But the more we live for eternal things here and now, the more perspective that will give us on death. Um, so here's a, a very silly example, but you know, just go with me. It's um, Sunday morning. So if, let's say we, we live for our Ferrari, right? It's Your ambition is to own a Ferrari, and if it's our life ambition and it determines everything that we do and then we have a financial crisis or most likely we crash the car because we don't know how to control it. And then what happens is if, if that's what we have been living for, it's our ambition, then our whole, our whole world comes crashing down. Or if we're lying on our deathbed one day and we realize that we can't take our Ferrari with us, then death all of a sudden becomes very much a dreaded and fearful reality. And so like I said, it's a silly example, but you hear what I'm getting at. In contrast then, to live for something eternal not only influences what we do here and now, but how we live here and now, and also radically changes how we see and how we feel about death. So we're going to put a slide up on the screen, I'm going to ask you to fill in the gaps as honestly as you can, and then we'll put it up again at the end of the sermon, and and hopefully your answer will have a lot more weight, or a lot more conviction to it, or maybe it will have changed for the better. But the slide goes, to live is, and fill in your own blank, and to die is what? To live is what, and to die is what? What? And maybe we say, well, because I'm living for this or because I'm living for that or because I'm living for this person, death makes me feel scared. Death, death is scary because it will mean the end of everything, the end of everything I've worked for, the end of everything I've achieved, the end of this relationship with this person. It all comes to an end. And so therefore, dead, death is dreaded. I, I fear it. And so should I re-evaluate what I am living for? And I'm not just saying this to the non-Christians, but to us as Christians as well. So here's what I'm proposing this morning, that as Christians, we are to live and die in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus because that will affect how we live here and now and give us a rather unique perspective on death. So here we go. How do we honor Jesus in our living and our dying? Three ways we're going to see this morning. By having Jesus as our highest goal, or we could say as the foundation of our lives, or we can even say as our worldview. Secondly, by seeing death as gain. And lastly, by serving others in our living. And We won't read the passage in one go. We kind of, will split it up under those three headings. So here we go. How do we honor Jesus in our living and our dying? Number one, firstly, by having Jesus as our highest goal. Now this is Pretty much a, a blanket statement, but we are a, a very much a goal orientated society, particularly in the Western culture. You know, we, we're driven to succeed in something, and so we set up goals in order to achieve that success. And the key word is, is driven. We all have this driving force in us that compels us towards something. So we have this internal compulsion to accomplish something, to do something, or even to be something. And it's this compulsion in us that uh, gives us the the discipline to to, to persevere. And the reason for that is we believe that once we achieve whatever this thing is, or once we reach this particular status, that we think we will have a certain amount of satisfaction. And then how often do we achieve that something only to realize that the satisfaction is short-lived? Or maybe we get the promotion at work, and yes, the extra bit of salary is wonderful, but then comes the added responsibility and the pressure of that new role. Or maybe we, you know, we achieve that ideal body weight finally, and then we realize, wow, it's a lot of hard work trying to keep that body weight. And so yes, we have these goals, and, but do they ultimately satisfy? And so listen, if, as Christians, we are ultimately designed by God for God, meaning we were created in His image and likeness then to live after Him and to live for Him is going to bring us our ultimate satisfaction. Again, let's go back to my silly illustration. Let's say you buy a Ferrari, and uh, for the purpose of this illustration, let's say the Ferrari has feelings, right? So you buy a Ferrari, and you then use it to plow your fields. It's not going to feel very satisfied at the end of the day. I mean, it may struggle and it may strive, but it may get the job done, a goal achieved, the field was plowed, but then you park park that Ferrari in the garage that evening, it's going to feel exhausted, but when you use it according to how it was designed, that's when it will feel most satisfied. When you're flying down the Esley Tiverts, screaming around the traffic circles, traffic roundabouts to get to church on time, that—did you hear my rebuke? <laughs> That's when it'll feel most satisfied, and when I'll be most happy as a pastor. When we—I'm just kidding. Don't speed. When we live for who we are designed by and for. That's when we'll be most satisfied, even if it means living in a world that is contrary to that design. Like we saw last week, Paul was living in a, in a world, and we're living in a world that is opposed to the gospel. And so Paul's goal was to live for Jesus, to, to live for his Lord and Savior, and to live for his Creator according to the original design for him and for us. So let's see how he, he tells us this. Philippians chapter 1 from the, first part of, uh, the last part of verse 18, says this. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. And that refers back to last week's sermon. Remember, he was in, uh, in prison, and he was saying how a bunch of people were going around preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry to try and make things worse for him in prison. And he's saying it doesn't matter as long as they're preaching Jesus. Says, that's what brings me joy. And he says, yes, and I will rejoice. And now he's going to tell us this deep-rooted foundation or goal that allows him to think that way, have that kind of worldview. So he says, he goes on, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not, at all, that, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And he says this. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So let's just clarify his goal here. He says, I want Jesus to be honored. I want Jesus to be glorified. I want Jesus to be magnified. I want Jesus to be shown off in my body, whether I live or whether I die. And so, how does Paul arrive at this point? How did did Jesus become his ultimate goal or his ultimate foundation or worldview? Was it a process of elimination? It's like, yeah, yeah, I tried Judaism and, you know, kind of reached the ceiling there. And, and besides all the rules and, and the traditions kind of weighed me down. And then we also know that he was, he was skilled in the, in the art of, of tent making. You know, when we did, he didn't have enough money to continue on his mission trips, he would make tents and sell them. And so maybe he's thinking, well, it's, it's not really a long-term career for me. And so let me try something different. Let me try this thing, Christianity. No, something fundamentally has happened to him. Something fundamental happened to him deep inside. And I want the Bible to show us this. And so look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20. It's an unusual passage, but I'm going to show you towards the end this fundamental shift, this fundamental change that Jesus brings about in us. So he says, flee from sexual immorality, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Here we go. He has this fundamental change. He says, or do you not know that your body, and remember what Paul is saying. He says, I want my body to glorify Jesus. So he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So here we go. Here's the goal. So glorify God in your body. So Paul writes to these troublesome Christians in in Corinth who were entertaining various forms of sexual immorality, and he says, hey, listen, your goal is not to fulfill the lusts of your sexual God. Your body is not the temple of the God of lust, but the temple of the God, God the Holy Spirit. And he reminds them that, hey, this came at great cost. It cost Jesus his life for this to happen. Therefore, the only appropriate response and therefore the only appropriate goal in life is to glorify God with your body. He says, because it doesn't belong to you anymore. You are the temple of God. And therefore, whatever you do with your body should reflect that. What you do with your body should reflect the deity within you. Look at Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See what he's saying? He said, I died when Christ died for me. But I'm still alive. But the life that I have now, it's a different kind of life. It's a new life. The life that died was the old sinful me, preoccupied with me, myself, and I, and my selfish ambitions, and all of my sin-tainted ambitions and goals in life. Now this new life is empowered by Jesus himself in and by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And how this new Christ life is activated in me, he says, is by faith in him. A life of absolute dependence on Jesus and no longer on my old self. And so sunrise, this is the groundwork, this is the the theological foundation as to how and only how Jesus can become the all-satisfying goal and treasure in our lives. It's the only way we can say, like Paul, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it's not easy. Let's go back to our passage in Philippians, and I'll show you why. He says this, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. It's not easy because he says he doesn't want to be ashamed, but rather with full courage, have Jesus be glorified and and honored in his life. And so what, what... what would cause Paul to be ashamed and not honor Jesus? Well, if he became ashamed of Jesus, think about his situation. He's in prison. Imagine if he said, Okay, guys, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry for, for going on about this Jesus. I'm sorry you know, to the imperial god for sh- sharing the gospel with you. I'm, sh- I'm sorry for writing all those, those letters to the Philippians, the Colossians, and Ephesians. Um, I don't believe, I recant, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And maybe, maybe then they would go easy on him. Maybe then they would release him. But he doesn't want to do anything, he says. They would bring shame to Jesus and he's witness of Jesus. And we get this, right? You ever walked away from a situation where you thought, ah, oh, I should have stood up more for what I believed there. Or I could, have, I could have shared the gospel there. I hate that feeling, you know, kind of like we kick ourselves for weeks afterwards. But I love how humble Paul is. Because as we saw last week, he says the whole imperial guard know who he is and know why he is in prison. He's been sharing the gospel with him. And so Paul has never shrunk back, but he says he still needs courage. He still needs to be full of courage, he says. And what's going to help him have this courage? He mentions two things in verse 19. He says, the prayers of the Philippians, and secondly, the help of the Holy Spirit. You see that? There's, a, there's the human responsibility side, and then there's this divine sovereign side. From the human responsibility side, this is, this is the inspired word of God, and so the Lord is telling us, and he's encouraging us, Sunrise, that your prayers matter, Your prayers matter. He's going to use them to to make a difference, not only in your life, but for those whom you're praying for. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that their prayers, the Philippian prayers, are going to be used by God to not only grant his release at some point, but also to impart courage to him so that he can continue to honor Jesus with his life. And then, of course, the means of that power to to bring about his release and to to bring about this, this courage in him in a world, like we said, that is completely opposed to Jesus, completely opposed to the, to the good news, is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the divine sovereign side, and Paul is very, very well aware of the help of the Holy Spirit, especially when it comes to his imprisonments. You remember how the church in Philippi was started? Paul and his team rolled in and Lydia, they preached the gospel and Lydia got saved and then he, he, he set free the, the poor slave girl who was possessed by a demon and you know, the owners didn't like that and so they stirred up this big crowd, that started beating up Paul and Silas who then got thrown into prison and then God sent this earthquake, an unusual earthquake, all the doors flung open, all the shackles fell off. And so Paul is, is very well aware of the divine sovereign help of the Holy Spirit the same Spirit who will deliver him from prison, this prison, and strengthen him to magnify Jesus in his life. That's our secret right there, sunrise. That's our secret right there. To have Jesus as our highest goal, we need the Spirit of Jesus to be at work within us. Because it's with this, the help of the Spirit. That we are slowly but surely sanctified or changed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. And the more we live according to this this image and this likeness, the more Jesus is glorified, the more we are satisfied. Because we're living according to our original design. But we have a responsibility in this too. Like the Philippians were praying, we too need to pray. Pray. We, we too need to, be pr- to, uh, to pray to be delivered from our, our lesser goals. To be delivered from our false idols so as to live for Jesus. So this is where an internal auditing question comes in for us. You ready? What are our prayers like? What are your prayers like? Because they tell a lot about what is most important to us. Now don't get me wrong, it's, it's, the Bible says, hey, you know, we, we're to bring everything before the Lord in prayer and supplication, especially the things that we are anxious about. Paul will teach us about that in chapter 4, we'll eventually get there. But how many times have we prayed, let's just be honest with ourselves, how, how many times have we prayed, Jesus, would you be honored in my body, whether by life or by death? Would you be magnified? Would you, would you show yourself off to be glorious in my body, in the way I live and, and die? And so I confess to you, I've fallen short here. Many of my prayers, you know, are, are all about my immediate needs, which Scripture tells us Jesus knows already. So how about we take up the challenge this week and we pray this. Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit to renovate my mind and my heart so as to live according to your original design intended for me? Renovate my mind and my heart because that is the, 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 uh, the driving seat of my focus and my affections which then drive my compulsions to do things. Compulsions to say things, compulsions to do things that then lead to a way of life or a lifestyle. And then watch how our goals, these, these goals that we thought were the be all and end all of our lives, watch how they take on new perspective, how they take on new meaning, how they take on new purpose when Jesus becomes the ultimate goal. How everything falls into place, everything receives its proper perspective when He is the ultimate goal, when He is our worldview, when He is our foundation. Which then brings us to the question of what does honoring Jesus in our living and our dying look like exactly? So let's take the death part first. So we finish on the living part, we finish on the high. So number two, how do we honor Jesus in our living and our dying? Number two, by seeing death as gain. By seeing death as gain. Now let's just take a second to, to wrap our minds around that. I mean, how do you see death you know, what comes to mind when you think about death? What, what kind of feelings does it conjure up in us? I'm guessing our thoughts and feelings would, would not all be that different in a room this size with, with so many people. I'm guessing heartache would be number one. Just raw heartache at the loss of a loved one. A family member, colleague, a friend. I'm guessing anger would also be in the top five. Anger towards God? Anger towards the person who caused the accident or whatever happened? Maybe even despair? Am I ever going to be able to get over this? Am I ever going to be able to to move on? And the list can go on and on, but I'll stop there. Not many of us would say gain. So so let's try and understand. How, how, How could Paul say this? Look at verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, he says. Okay, so in order to try and understand how death is gain, let's just kind of group those death clauses together. So in verse 21, he says, To die is gain, and we think, well, Paul, what on earth does that mean? He answers us and the last couple of phrases of verse 23, he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The word gain means to profit. So he's saying if Paul dies, he's going to get something profitable out of this, something profitable out of death. He's saying it's going to add to his life, not take away from his life, and he's saying that profit, that gain, is a person, the person of Jesus. So I was thinking, does that convict you or does that inspire you? So let me, let me share a difficult story with you. And I'm sure you all have very painful and difficult stories, but let me share this one. Jay and I had a, a dear friend who, who passed away about three or four years ago. Uh, he had been a very successful doctor, accomplished many things in his medical career, and uh, he had also accumulated a lot of wealth in the process. He, he did come to faith in Jesus late in his life, and so uh, much of his earlier motives was all about gaining uh, wealth. Uh, and so his goal was to, to work hard and retire well by the age of 65. And he also kept himself in very good shape. I mean, by the time he retired uh, at 65, he was probably one of the fittest 65-year-olds I've ever known. And then upon his retirement and, and about to enjoy the, the fruit of all of this hard-earned labor, he, he said one, one night he was lying in bed and he just kind of rested his hands on his stomach. And he said he felt something hard protruding from his lower intestine region. And he said immediately he was full with dread because as a doctor he had an idea what it was. Next morning he went for an MRI scan and it confirmed that he was riddled with cancer. And he was only given a few months to live, but uh, you know, he tried various treatments, he tried to fight hard. To cut a, a, a painful story short, I went to visit him a few weeks before he died and and it was, it was very difficult. He was really angry. He said, Jason, this is not fair. I've worked so hard to achieve all of this. I had a plan. I had a goal. I bought my dream car. and I wanted to go travel the world. I wanted to enjoy this house. And he had this big, beautiful holiday house further down the coast in South Africa. And he continued to list all of these things that he wanted to do with his wealth and how he had stayed in shape so that he could go and do all of these things. And I just sat there and I, and I listened and I listened. And eventually he finished and he said, why is God being so unfair to me, Jason. It was hard for me. I mean, I I, I didn't really care about his plans. I I, I just didn't want my friend to die. And so in my very jittery, emotional state, I stuttered out the words, it's because Jesus is better. I said, where you are going and who you will be with is like nothing any of us have ever experienced here. Everything that you have spoken about, all your goals, all your dreams, pale in significance as to where you are going and who you will be with. He just stared at me. And then he changed the subject. And I thought, oh, well done, Jason. Trust you to come up with the most Christian-y, cliched statement ever. He changed the subject and we, we laughed a bit and we cried a bit and eventually I went home. I got a phone call a couple of weeks later saying my friend wanted to see me and so I drove all the way through. It turns out it would be the day before he died. So I arrived at his big beautiful home and went into his room and I was surprised at how he had deteriorated so substantially and he said to me, open the curtains. So I went and I opened the curtains and there was the pool guy outside, busy cleaning the pool? And he shouted, he said, hey Winston, show my pastor your teeth. So I was like, oh man, this cancer's gone to his head, this is going to be awkward. And with that, the pool guy smiles and he shows off these sparkling teeth. And he said, "Um, three weeks ago, this guy only had like three teeth in his mouth. And I said to him, you're never going to get married with three teeth in your mouth. So he paid for dental reconstructive surgery so that he would have a full set of teeth and then he said, now you can go get married and with that the pool guy burst into laughter, I burst into laughter and he carried on and he said, hey, and you, you met my housekeeper when you came in I said, yes, well, I said two weeks ago I called her in and I said you never have to worry about your children's tuition fees primary school, high school, uh, university, I've got it covered he said, shame. She, she dropped to her knees and she just cried in gratitude. And then he said, hey, did you see my, did you see my new Volvo outside? And I said, yes. He said, well, the day after I die, it's going to be delivered to so-and-so with a big red bow on it. And then he said, hey, this nurse that worked faithfully with me for years and years, I know she always wanted to be a doctor and she never had the finance. Well, now, the day after I die, she's going to get a fright when she looks at her bank account. She's going to be able to become a doctor. And for the next five, ten minutes, he just rattled off this list of all the things that he put in place to bless certain people when he died. Now I was thinking, what happened between that first conversation we had and now this one? I'll tell you what happened. The last part of verse 23 happened. You see it? For that is far better. The word better is a a comparison word. It's a word that's used to judge between at least two things and then make a decision which way or which one is better and then pursue it. And so my friend looked at his life and he looked at his goals and by the grace of God, he decided to live is Christ and to die is gain. The real profit is to go and be with his Lord and Savior. Let me address one more thing before the last point. I debated about this one, but I'm going to to go for it. You look at those verses. Is Paul suicidal or is he promoting suicide? I realize this is a very sensitive topic, but that's why I'm addressing it. I want us to see the hope of the gospel. Suicide is when you've given up all hope. When someone believes that there's absolutely nothing left for him or her in in this world. That there's no more purpose for them. There's no more meaning for them. uh, Or all the pain that they're carrying. Or all the guilt that they're carrying. They can see this is just never going to go away. And so suicide is an attempt to escape all hopelessness. Well, the Apostle Paul is in prison. And he has experienced a lot of heartache and tragedy and physical pain because of the gospel. But he is by no means hopeless. In fact, he's conflicted. He's conflicted, but he's not wanting to escape. He says, Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. He's saying, If I live, I live for Jesus. And if I die, well, that's amazing. I'll go get to be with Jesus. What is that? That's hope. Any form of hopelessness was swallowed up by his hope and his passion for Jesus. His passion to live for Jesus and and all that Jesus promises to be for Paul. And secondly, even in that desire, he says, I desire to go be with Jesus. But even in that desire, he doesn't decide to take his own life because he's fully submitted to the will of Jesus. He knows Jesus is the one who will decide when to call me home. And he is the one who decides whether I continue living for him. All Paul knows is that when Jesus does call him home, however that might happen, it's going to be gain. And there's such freedom and there's such hope in living like this. If I live, hey, I live for Jesus. If I die, hey, I go be with Jesus. To live for anything else in this world means that we'll hold on to this world with everything that we have. And that's when Death is to be feared or dreaded. And that either sets us off in two extremes. The pride of life. Hey, look at all of, uh, look at everything that I've accumulated. Look at everything I've achieved in life. And therefore, death is dreaded. Or the other extreme is dis- despair in life. And all I want to do is escape life. But there is freedom from both extremes... When Christ is your life, when you can say to live is Christ and to die is gain because I get to be with him. So then, how should we then live? How should we live in a way that will bring honor to Jesus and not trap us in the things of this world? Last point. By serving others in our living. By serving others in our living. You might think, well, well, that doesn't make sense. Surely we should say, we honor Jesus by serving Him in our living. But this is the the language and this is the logic of the Bible. The the, the expression of our living here horizontally for the honor of Jesus vertically uh, is seen or it's demonstrated in how we serve one another. The way we live horizontally brings glory to Jesus vertically. And so what I, want us to, what, I, what I want to submit to us is that we are to, to begin with Jesus first, begin with the vertical, so that then affects how we live here horizontally. If we start with the horizontal, we'll always be questioning whether this is indeed bringing enough glory to Jesus vertically. And that's what Paul has been showing us all along. That's what his motto means. To live is Christ. To die is gain. He begins with Jesus. He begins with Jesus so that it affects the way he lives here and now. And so let's see how he does it. Look at verse 24. It says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account to serve you, Philippians. And so this lines up with what he said in in verse 22 about fruitful labor. He's saying, you Philippians are my fruitful labor. The Colossians, fruitful labor. The Ephesians, fruitful labor. The Imperial God, fruitful labor. and, And wherever and whoever he shares the gospel with, the logic continues. Look at verse 25. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So he's saying, well, if Paul is going to continue in the flesh, and therefore according to his motto, that means to live for the the honor and the glory of Jesus, what, what does that look like practically, Paul? He says, for your progress and joy in the faith. You see that? To live, yes, is Christ. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to persevere for your progress and your joy in your walk with Jesus. He says, that's how I will glorify Jesus, with every breath that I take. And then look at the ripple effect of this. Look at verse 26. He says, so that in me, when I come and serve you, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Not to glory in in Paul, who was was doing a great job of ministering to them, but glorying in Jesus. In fact, that's a great sign. That's a good sign of a good pastor right there. As he ministers to the glory of Jesus, it results in his church growing in their faith so that they honor their pastor. No, so that they too begin to glory in Jesus. And it's not just an example to us as church leadership, but to all of us as we minister to each other. The Apostle Peter says that we are the priesthood of all believers, that as Christians, we are all priests to one another. And we're all to be loving and caring each other and encouraging each other, but we do so in a way that magnifies Jesus, that makes, that shows Jesus off. And then this vertical glory and horizontal benefit that kind of creeps into every aspect of our lives. Look at Colossians 3.17. And he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, horizontally, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, vertically, vertically giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is more than just what we do on a you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five. Saying everything you say, everything you do on a horizontal level is to reflect Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is to become the lens by which you say everything, do everything, react, respond, so that he gets the glory. And guess what? Everyone else benefits from glorified speech glorified actions, glorified reactions. It's the same logic, creeps into all of our relationships and our marriages. Look at Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Why? Because it'll glorify them? Why? Because they're worthy of it? No, we know that one, no. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord. Husbands get the benefit in how their wives glory in Christ Jesus. Husbands are definitely not off the hook. Look at this. Husbands, love your wives however you feel when you have the time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You look vertical, husbands. You want to know how to love your wife? You look vertical first so that your wives then experience the love of Jesus. And in doing so, Jesus is magnified in your marriage. If we're going to honor Jesus in our living, we look to him first so that that then determines what living looks like horizontally. And we can do it, sunrise. We can do it because, and only because of this, Jesus came to show us how to do it. Jesus came to show us how to live a life that brings glory to God by serving us. And the ultimate way He served us was through the cross. Dying for our sins on the cross so that we might have new hearts with new desires, new compulsions so that we can begin to say more and more with more conviction to live indeed is Christ and to die is gain. Now, let's put that slide up one more time. Can you see That if it's Jesus, your answer is Jesus, then everything we do horizontally will be impacted by the glory of God or glory to God. Can you imagine the impact that that will have on your life? The impact in terms of the way you work, the way you speak, how we are in our various relationships, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, and ultimately how you see and how you feel about death. Listen, death is not pretty. My friend did not die a nice death. It was horrendous. I asked for closure's sake. But I knew that once he was past it, it was gain. That's the perspective. Maybe for others of us, you know, we look at the slide and we go, I know it needs to be Jesus, But at least now I know what I should repent of. To live is my job. To live is my family. To live is my comfort. To live is me, myself, and I, my goals, and my dreams. And therefore, death, yes, death then is feared and and dreaded. But Jesus, and this needs to be all of our prayer. But Jesus, would you help me? through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to repent of that so that everything in my life takes its proper place under you as my ultimate goal, as my ultimate treasure, as the foundation of my life, as my worldview, so that even death becomes gain. Amen.